like I won't eat room service at the moment. I try not to eat out that much just because I have to be kind of extra paranoid. Because the more you look into Russian assassins, the more you find out how they assassinate people. So you try and like say, okay, I better not, you know, do this or that. Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley, and in this episode, our guest is Elliot Higgins, founder of the online investigative collective Bellingcat, which, over the last 10 years, has used open-source investigation techniques to prove that Syria's regime used chemical weapons against its citizens, find evidence of Russian involvement in the downing of Malaysian Airlines Flight MH17, and unmask the kill teams who poisoned Russian defector Sergei Skripal and opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Alexei Navalny, a rival to Russian President Vladimir Putin, is recovering in Berlin after the suspected assassination attempt. He was poisoned by a nerve agent called Novichok. I began our conversation by asking Elliot to explain how he learned the skills and techniques of open source investigation. Well, I, I've really taught myself how to do um, online open source investigation as an investigative skill. And that really started with me just kind of being on the internet and seeing what people were saying about the conflict in Libya in 2011 and seeing the arguments over the authenticity of videos coming from that conflict and kind of teaching myself the kind of what, what now are like the core skills for uh, open source investigators, things like geolocation to confirm where videos were filmed and to kind of verify claims being made about them. When you were growing up, Elliot, did you have aspirations to be either an investigator or a journalist? You know, for the previous 10 or 15 years before I started doing this, I was doing various roles in kind of for companies do it to do with, with admin and finance and not particularly senior roles. And this kind of just became a hobby of mine. I'd always been interested in kind of global affairs. And, um, you know, I, I think growing up, my teenage years were bookended by the first uh, Gulf War and then 9-11 and um, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So I think that kind of defined me somewhat and my interests. And then when it came around to 2011 and this kind of wealth of information being shared online from, you know, the, the, this huge event at the Arab Spring, I just became fascinated with, you know, what information you could find out about the conflict, which wasn't coming from traditional sources. You could actually get a much kind of gran more granular view of what was happening on the ground than you could get from kind of the journalists on the ground because they were kind of stuck in one position. Whilst thanks to the internet, you had lots of people from all over the country sharing videos, making claims and allegations, and by analysing and verifying them, I could kind of figure that out. So it was kind of never my intention to end up where I am today. I just kind of started my blogging more as a hobby for my own entertainment rather than thinking about, oh, I'm going to build an audience and do this and that. It was more just, oh, I just want somewhere to write down my thoughts on these interesting things I'm seeing on the internet. It's been a pretty amazing decade since then, hasn't it? What for you have been the milestones I would definitely say that the 2013 investigation I did into um, arms smuggling to the re rebels in Syria was probably one of the first really big stories that kind of got my name out there to uh, quite a lot of uh, kind of journalists and people working on human rights because I'd been blogging for about a year um, throughout 2012 looking at videos coming from the conflict in Syria and I couldn't speak Arabic but and I kind of taught myself to identify the weapons that were being used and being shown in these videos 
They included things like cluster munitions and incendiary bombs and stuff that had kind of a you know a, a kind of human rights and uh, you know accountability angle on it. So that kind of built me a bit of an audience among kind of Syria watchers, be they working for places like Human Rights Watch or The Guardian. But in 2013, I identified um, that these new weapons appearing in the conflict that had never appeared in the conflict before. They weren't from any of the countries surrounding Syria where you'd expect some of these weapons to be coming from. And um, I knew a journalist from the New York Times who'd been following my work for a year and I showed him the videos and said, you know, I explained that I'd identified which groups had them. They all seemed to be kind of the moderate rebel groups that were being supported by um, kind of Western states and kind of some of the um, Gulf states as well. He took those videos to um, some U US officials and that basically started the process of basically exposing this sm smuggling network. And that ended up on the front page of the New York Times and I started getting lots of interest from media organisations. Like the week after that was published... For a week, every day, I had like a different film crew from a different station coming to my house. I had like CNN, then Channel 4 News, and then ARD from Germany. And I think all my neighbours were probably thinking I'd won the lottery or something like that. But I didn't move out, so they probably thought I was a murderer after that. But that was kind of a really big moment first for kind of putting my name on the map a bit more. What gave you confidence to be able to do this? And likewise, what gave, you know, the New York Times and other outlets confidence in you that actually this was... This was credible information because when you're working on your own, it takes a lot of self-confidence to be able to stand by what you've, you know, what you believe is right without having an army of people behind you sort of, you know, helping you and, and supporting you. Well, I think part of it was that I spent a really long time, like, obsessively looking at details in these videos. Like, if I saw, like, there was a bomb in a video, I'd want an idea, and that would be, like, looking at individual kind of bolts and nuts on these weapons and then comparing them to as much reference imagery as I could find for these munitions. Fortunately, because they were kind of Soviet-era weaponry, that's very, very well documented by people on the internet. So that made it kind of easiest to do. If I got stuck over time, because I was like the only person looking at these videos and I was finding stuff that kind of arms and munitions experts and human rights organizations were interested in, I kind of got to talk to them like online. And if I got stuck on something, I could kind of run it by them and get their opinion and they could point me to someone who might know something. So I kind of then built up a kind of expert network around the work that I was doing. Um, and because I was also being quite limited on what I was actually saying about these videos I wasn't I had seen so many blogs in the past that tended to be kind of self-described independent journalists and often anti-war where it was just they'd watch a video and they make so many conclusions based off that video that just weren't supported by the contents of it I didn't want to be another kind of person just doing a blog that was full of rubbish so if I saw something in a video I would say I could identify it I would say this is what that weapon is or this is where it was filmed or I wouldn't be saying therefore we can make all these amazing conclusions about what's being shown and I think because of that, people who are looking at my work, you know, from other professional fields, saw that I was just being very transparent about what I knew and what I didn't know and what these videos showed. And that helped build a reputation over time. And after spending a year looking at these different arms and munitions, when these new weapons started appearing in early 2013, I was very confident because I was like really systematic about going through every single kind of video I could see looking for new weapons at that point. I could be confident that these were new and then I could track back through all the sources I used to see if they had appeared before. So it was just being kind of very thorough and meticulous about the information that I was collecting. Unfortunately, because of the way 
kind of social media was being used by opposition groups in Syria. It was quite kind of um, limited. So there was like, you know, in the end, about a thousand YouTube channels, which seems like a lot. But when it covers every single conflict video coming from a conflict, it's actually not that many. But it meant I could go through and check as many as possible every single time and then go back and check stuff quite easily. So because of that, it helped kind of, I think, other people see that they could rely on the work that I was producing. And then when it came to kind of that big story in 2013, because I was speaking to a journalist who went off and did his own fact-checking and could check the sources I provided and double-checked all the information I could do, he could be confident that what I was saying was accurate. At that point in 2013, I was still working a kind of ordinary job and doing this as a hobby, but I had been working in a job where basically our office was shut down and I was being made redundant. I had a temporary job for a few months and then nothing else. So at that point, I was offered a job working for a private intelligence company and I said to everyone, well, you know, I've got to pay my mortgage and they need me to stop blogging if I do this. And then some people said, if you keep going, we'll you know, try crowdfunding. I did that and I raised a small amount, but it was enough for me to keep going for another year. And in that year, there was the August 21st, 2013 sarin attack, which was a, you know, the really kind of biggest chemical attack you know, for many decades, actually, since the 1980s. It was a huge part of the conflict and there was a, a loss of misinformation and propaganda around it. Because I was really the only person who'd spent all that time looking at all these videos coming from Syria... I was the only person who realised the munitions used, which were quite unusual, had previously been used by the Syrian government forces. The August sarin gas attack near Damascus killed an estimated 1,400 men, women and children. It drew global attention back to the century-long struggle to stop the scourge of chemical weapons. And this is at the time when the likes of Seymour Hersh, for example, were claiming that these missiles had come from Turkey and been provided by the Turkish government to jihadists. Whilst I could see through the open source material that none of that could have been true. So at that point, then all the people who'd kind of become my audience from the kind of media and uh, human rights organisations and others who had been following my work then saw kind of me versus Seymour Hersh, you know, this great you know, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And I think because of the open source stuff, they kind of saw that I was making a much more convincing case than someone who was using a handful of sources who were just telling him stuff, all of which were clearly contradicted by the open source evidence. So that was kind of like another really big moment for me. And eventually, nine months later, I would launch Bellingcat in July 2014. And that was just a few days before Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine. And that was 298 people were killed. It was a huge international story. Investigators who were looking at the downing of Malaysia Airlines Flight MH17 back in 2014 say this morning they have definitive proof the airliner was shot down by a Russian army missile system. But again, because I was one of the few people actually bothering to look at the open source side of this, when there was a lot of it coming out from the country, that kind of always gave me an advantage a lot above traditional news media. And you also had traditional news media who were on the ground following up the stuff that I was writing about and discovering, adding more information to what I was finding. And that whole kind of story created a massive catalyst, both for kind of Bellingcat's growth and kind of the growth of our team, but also for open source investigation as a whole, because there you had a kind of amateur group Bellingcat doing an investigation in parallel to an official criminal investigation and what started happening over years is when the official criminal investigation announced they had evidence that they were going to make public or you know they were going to make a statement it was always the same as the stuff we'd been saying for the previous two years 
And I think that helped build a lot of confidence in open source investigation and helped build the reputation of Bellingcat. We still work on um, MH17, and it was certainly something we focused on a lot for a few years. But then in 2018, um, with the Skripal poisoning... British police now believe that former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia were poisoned with a nerve agent. They are calling it a deliberate act. My colleague Christo Grozev, who volunteers for Bellingham at the moment, he started looking at the background of the alleged poisoners and started using the Russian data markets to purchase information that in other countries wouldn't be accessible. So phone records, passport registration forms, stuff like that. And from that, he managed to reconstruct the real identities of the two poisoners. So when they, they were kind of on Russia Today saying how they were sports nutrition salesmen seeing the 123 meter Salisbury Spire and all that nonsense, we already had the documents that showed that they were linked to the intelligence services. Uh, and then the following day, we published that. And that was a massive story because thanks to Russia Today having this kind of dog and pony show with the two suspects and then us the next day literally being able to say these two guys are spies, it made it a much, much bigger story than it would have been otherwise. The two individuals named by the police and CPS are officers from the Russian Military Intelligence Service. And then that actually, the stuff we did after that, where we identified more suspects linked to the Skripal case, um, the poisoning of a Bulgarian arms dealer called Armenian Gebrev as well, linked to the same GRU unit and some of the people linked to the Skripal poisoning. That then led us to discover the location where we believe the Novichok poison was being made. And in 2020, when Navalny was poisoned, that allowed us to then identify the FSB team by looking at the phone records of the doctor who ran this kind of poisoning lab. And that then just opened up a whole new kind of range of poisonings. So we first looked into the Navalny poisoning, found the FSB team behind that, looked into that FSB team and they were following a number of other individuals when they all fell mysteriously ill and in some cases died. And the more we looked into it, the more killings we found. I think we've published, in addition to the Navani poisoning, we've published about five other individuals who were targeted for assassination, three of which were successfully killed. Um, we have several, like a backlog of assassinations we're still looking into by the same team. Um, and we're sure there's you know more out there. But that was really, in one sense, one ongoing investigation rather than separate investigations, all starting with that kind of scripple poisoning case. We, we have three key areas of um, Bellingcat's work, which is um, focused on justice and accountability, education and tech development. Justice and accountability is where, because there's a lot of interest in the kind of work that we're doing from the likes of the International Criminal Courts and the um, various mechanisms for the UN setup, um, there's a lot of questions about how open source evidence can be used by these mechanisms and how it can be used in court. And you would perhaps expect that you know, the likes of the ICC would have figured this stuff out already, but they're, they're kind of coming to us and asking us how, you know, we do our work. And we're working with lawyers and others now to develop processes for archiving and investigation where the goal is that finally this stuff could be used in court if need be. But along the way, we can still do the normal publications. We do the kind of more media focused publications because we've already kind of verified the evidence it's just how we then choose to kind of amplify it. It could be either, you know, an article, a podcast or, you know, a court submission, really. Um, we also do a lot of work educating people. I think last year we trained around a thousand people. 
We've been doing training for several years. Some of it is paid courses. Some of it we do for free, supporting other organisations. Um, sometimes it's working with universities and others to teach them how to build their own kind of open source investigation capability and make it something teachable to the students. So that's kind of a really big part of what we do because our audience isn't just people who consume information. Often it's people who participate in the investigations themselves in big ways and small. So the more people who know how to do open source investigation, the better it is for us and for the whole open source investigation community. Then we have tech development where we're looking at kind of tools that we're developing. We have um, kind of like a GitHub page where we have a number of tools we've developed for specific projects that we make public and those three areas are kind of what leads our decision making at the moment. I would say the majority of our work is still self-generated I mean our kind of policy when it comes to what we're writing about is very much led by the interests of the investigators because I found that makes more better work basically and we have a kind of quite a broad idea of what subjects we will work on I mean we still do a lot on kind of Russia because you know they've been up to so much stuff and we've got the evidence to prove it but we're looking into a lot lot of different areas very rarely is it someone comes to us with something although more and more around certain conflicts like for example with the Ethiopia and Tigray situation we have various bodies coming to us you know like from the UN for example saying we've seen you've done some work on this are you interested in doing some more work you know could you look at this so sometimes we get requests like that way because no one else is really doing the open source work on that that area that we're kind of the only hope for some of these organizations to get that additional layer of open source investigation done in addition to the rest of the work that they're doing well just on the open source methodology how has it developed over the last 10 years and are you surprised that more organizations are not yet using open source methodologies it's not so much that there's been a big change in the technologies that we have. I mean, there are kind of some things that have appeared, like reverse image search was something that appeared and became very useful. Um, there's been a broader range of search platforms made available, which all work slightly differently that make life easier. But, you know, 10 years ago, we still had Google Earth. We still had a satellite imagery that came from that. Satellite has been, imagery has become a lot easier to kind of get nowadays um, both free imagery and um, being able to buy it I'm, even now we have a registration with planet labs that allows us to get imagery and also task satellites to look at specific locations which is certainly a pretty significant new capability but it's really been more the attitudes from various fields towards open source investigation have become a lot more open so very early on it was more kind of journalism and human rights organizations that kind of saw open source investigation and what was possible but now that's expanding into other areas and you're seeing more and more larger organizations like the bbc and the new york times doing having kind of open source investigation teams themselves but i think what still makes bellingcat quite unique is because we aren't just a kind of media organization we do other things as well we might do an investigation that we publish on our website but then there's kind of follow-ups we can do with that kind of advocacy and accountability work around that that we also will do where the bbc and the new york times will be a lot less likely to do that because that's not what they're paid for so that still is something that I think is still quite unique about Bellingcat as an organisation, and there's not many other organisations like that. But you do see kind of more traditional established organisations from kind of particularly human rights and media organisations 
you know, starting to do this more and more and see the importance of this. And we certainly get a large number of people coming from those kinds of organisations asking for training. And now I think with the success of the work on MH17 and the fact there was this parallel police investigation, I think law enforcement is more and more interested in this. And we're finding ourselves more engaged with justice and accountability organisations, either at the kind of levels of kind of lawyers or at a higher level with the actual um, organisations like the International Criminal Court who are looking at how this evidence can be used in their own work. In terms of the team members who do the the investigative work and research work, what are the key skills they need to have? I mean, we're looking for people, obviously, who have a kind of demonstrable skill in open source investigation. I mean, usually because it's a very online community, people usually have work out there that can be looked at and they build their own reputation through time as well. It's like if someone applies for a job and, you know, I, I don't know who they are, then they probably aren't very engaged with the open source investigation community because generally, you know, I, I know most people who are engaged with it. Um, we're also looking for people who, you know, have a really good sense of team spirit, are very collaborative, um, aren't the kind of people who, you know, want to see, you know, if the main reason they're doing it is so they can have their name on a byline and take all the credit for work because it's such a collaborative kind of way of working both internally and, you know, with external organisations and individuals that this kind of, I think, old-fashioned way of kind of doing journalism where, you know, it's, it's scoops and exclusives doesn't really fit with our kind of way of thinking. So we're looking for someone who kind of thinks in that way and, you know, can work collaboratively with other organisations without feeling like the ownership of what they're doing is being taken away from them. You want people who care about the topics they're looking into, but you also want people who don't define themselves around that, who aren't like saying, I'm the person who's going to fight for justice in this area. You want people saying, you know, I'm really interested in this area. I want to find out the truth behind what's happening. And then combining that with a strong editorial team is also quite important. We've um, built an editorial team up that is very good and also very focused on making sure that the work we put out there does not fall into those traps of biases it's helped somewhat that we're using open source evidence so we you know can clearly see what the evidence is it isn't just someone expressing their opinion or interviewing someone and then writing it up it's you know here's the photograph here's the video here's what it shows here's what we can conclude from that I mean, there is always going to be people with their opinions working for us, but I think everyone knows that what's expected of them and what's expected editorially is that we present things with as little bias as possible. And that's not to say that we aren't going to call out a country for doing something bad, but it's we're going to do it backed by evidence rather than just because we don't like them. Have you ever, ever felt at risk personally? I mean, d does that cause you concern? Have you sleepless nights? I don't have sleepless nights, but I do have, um, usually because I'm exhausted because I've got two young kids, but um, it's uh, more that um, you are aware that you do become targeted. And I kind of see this in two areas. You have the kind of people off the internet who get a bit too obsessed with you and you never know how they're going to act. And to me, they're almost more of a threat than the other group, which are the kind of state kind of intelligence services. And we've certainly been targeted by various cyber attacks, disinformation. You know, there's certainly a physical threat to us as well. I have to be extra cautious when I'm staying in places. I put up hidden cameras and stuff like that in the places I'm staying to record anyone entering my room when I'm not there. I always carry my laptop and my devices with me. With the kind of Navani poisoning and the fact he was poisoned his hotel room you have to be kind of extra careful like I won't eat room service at the moment I try not to eat out that much just because I have to be kind of extra paranoid because 
the more you look into Russian assassins, the more you find out how they assassinate people. So you try and like say, okay, I better not, you know, uh, do this or that. The thing is, when Navani was first poisoned, they found Novichok on the water bottles. So I thought, oh, they must be poisoning the water bottles. That's I won't be able to drink water in hotel rooms anymore, just in case. Then we found out it was under, his underpants that were poisoned. And I think I'm going to have to carry my underpants everywhere with me now so they don't get poisoned. Wow. That's quite a, quite a set of precautions. Um, just a couple of final questions. I mean, for early stage journalists, investigators, whatever we want to call them, what what's your what's your advice i think one thing is don't wait for someone to give you permission to do this i just did it for kind of for fun and it turned into something do something that's also that you're interested in that you care about and it doesn't have to be a big global conflict it can be something that's much more local also you've got a massive amount of resources available online on a whole range of different topics not just on the bellingcat website but places like first draft news for example they're producing content there's all kinds of guides that you can find at the moment that will help you learn how to do this. And the best way to learn how to do it is to do it. You start off with something simple, like geolocate a video, but actually write a blog post. You don't even have to publish it, just explaining how you did it. And every time you do that, that will stick in your brain. It will make it easier next time. And you can do something more complicated and you know, engage with people on social media. I, I think at the moment, you probably see most of the open source discussion happening on Twitter. And... If you can start getting involved and engaged on Twitter, you'll see those conversations happening. And you can jump in with, you know, saying someone's looking at a video and they don't know where it is, try and geolocate it. And then just kind of jump in and say, I think it's here, and then just explain why. And if you're wrong, they'll tell you you're wrong, so don't worry about that. But it just gives you a chance to practice your skills when you might be looking for something that you're trying to do. But just, you know, realize there's a vast amount of information out there at your fingertips. It's just a matter of learning how to do it. And really open source investigation is generally actually not that difficult it's more about learning all the kind of different tools and techniques it's like learning how to hammer a nail in the to the wall how to turn a screw how to you know do just very simple stuff but then applying all those different techniques and using all those different tools and in increasingly more complicated projects but you know start with the basics and then you'll be able to do more complicated stuff later where do you see bell and cat in five years and what will you be doing in five years time well, I'm, I'm hoping um, we would have developed a lot on that kind of justice and accountability process and what we're developing around that. We've already been doing that on a project um, focused on Yemen, and I'm hoping we'll keep develop that, developing that. Um, I'll be personally focused on kind of production, so I'm hoping that eventually we'll have a... We've done a couple of podcasts, um, one focused on MH17 and another one on um, murders that took place in Cameroon that's been very successful, and we're hoping to get to the point where we can develop those and publish them on a regular occasion. We're also working at the moment on TV documentary projects that we're hoping um, will also have a big impact. So we're going to continue to develop those as well. Um, I've got the um, paperback edition of my book, We Are Bellingcat, coming out um, early next year. So we're hoping that we'll be kind of doing more stuff like that because it's really important for us to engage as many people as possible. And, um, you know, the book is a good way of learning a lot of kind of where I came from and the skills I picked up and how to do that as well. So it's, it's really as well expanding into new regions of the world. We're working already on a project related to Latin America, where we're hoping to equip um, networks of journalists there with open source investigation skills, but also working with kind of younger 16 to 18 year old students to teach them how to do open source investigation and get them engaged positively with their local communities and dealing with kind of local issues and being part of the kind of networks that we've developed will we still be talking in five ten years time about open source investigative 
techniques or will it just be the things we do that's you know it's just everyday activities i, I think probably what you're going to see on one hand is a kind of growth of the use of open source investigation in a variety of different fields and we're seeing that already and we're seeing that there's growing interest and the way it's being applied to those fields it's, it's kind of becoming more and more complex and um hopefully in the long term more integrated into those fields and you know that's everything from journalism to justice and accountability um on the other hand i mean we've already seen russia taking steps to crack down on the kind of sources that we've been using for our work they passed a law a couple of years ago um banning soldiers from sharing any information about their service photographs or videos online and that was a clear reaction to the work we've been doing on mh17 where we used just that stuff to expose russia's involvement in the conflicts in eastern ukraine and the shooting down of mh17 we're also seeing now with russia alongside efforts to crack down on the kind of data sources that we're using a crackdown on independent media and um, a clear crackdown on internet service providers who aren't willing to toe the russian line and i think what we'll see in countries that start getting impacted by open source investigation is you know in authoritarian countries attempts to crack down on that kind of information the access to information and the access to kind of websites as well by citizens of those countries there hasn't been an awful lot of work done on China, for example, using open source investigation. I expect once there is going to be that stuff happening, you will see more and more attempts to crack down on what information is being shared on different topics. So I think you will see a trend to attempts to crack down on information that's difficult for you know authoritarian governments. And I think we'll only see that increase over the years. But I think the way they will try to restrict that might be too much for their, their citizens to accept. Because if you really want to crack down on everything that's possible with open source investigation, that means getting rid of social media, banning a lot of people from doing a lot of stuff on the internet that they enjoy doing. And I, I think people might push back against that. So we'll just have to see what the next five to ten years brings. The reason that there's not much open source investigative work done in China is because it's just too difficult? Because open source investigation is a field developed around um, the conflicts in the Arab Spring countries and Ukraine, MH17 and Russia, most people who are good at open source investigation usually comes from, lang if they have a language skill, it's usually Arabic or Russian. What that means, if you're, you're a Chinese speaker, there's very, very few Chinese-speaking open source investigators. And that's great for you, because if you become a Chinese-speaking open source investigator and you're decent, there are people falling over themselves to hire Chinese-speaking open source investigators at the moment. I mean, if you are Chinese-speaking, I really, really recommend you do as much as you can on open source investigation. Because like every week now, I have someone saying, oh, we want to do a project on China, but we can't because there's not enough open source investigators. Do that and you'll have no problem getting a job. I absolutely strongly recommend that any Chinese speakers do open source investigation because there's a huge amount of interest in the jobs market for those kind of people. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. Thanks for tuning in.